Welcome back to the Mom Who Works podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Worthen. If you're wondering if you belong here, you do. If you're wondering if you're a good mom, you are. And if you want the permission and power to figure out exactly what you want out of the intersection of motherhood and careerhood, we've got your back. Mom Who Works is for the mom who already works, the mom who misses work, the mom who wants to work, and the mom who doesn't know what the hell she wants. And we're so glad you are here. This week, we are diving into chapter four of the Mom Who Works book. I royally messed up this week, and I usually have an episode recorded that I'm editing ahead of time, like a week in advance. And I don't know what I did, but I overscheduled my time. So I'm actually going to jump on and record the book reading right after this introduction. So wish me luck. It's 9.40 p.m. the night before the episode's supposed to drop. But hey, this is what we do sometimes. We are moms who work. So uh, here we go. Chapter four. Professional judgment. Mom of two, ages four and one. On becoming a mom who works. I'm an accountant, so I plan everything. Quote, having it all has always been included in the many spreadsheets planning my life. It comes as a surprise to virtually no one, but actually my journey to becoming a mom who works did not follow any version of my spreadsheets. Six years into marriage, four years into waiting for our miracle, and two chronic illness diagnoses later, my husband and I decided to accept being a family of two. After enduring so much uncertainty, I embraced the chance to do something I could control. I applied for a doctoral program with the help of some very beautiful tracking spreadsheets, and we moved across the country. Two years later, health problems led me to a surgeon who unexpectedly identified the source of my infertility, and I soon became a mom who goes to grad school, which I remember as being very similar to being a mom who works, but with an extra dose of uncertainty. Upon graduation, we moved cross country again, and I officially became a mom who works. The biggest lesson I learned while becoming a mom who works is that nothing about being mom fits in my spreadsheets. On remaining a mom who works, my life is as close to the best of both worlds as I think I can get for a mom who works. I work in an extremely flexible job and my husband is a stay-at-home dad. Having my husband as the primary daytime caregiver for both of our children is a dream come true for me. He takes care of almost all of the logistics, doctor's appointments, preschool drop-off, when there was such a thing, sick days. Of course, I'm the planner of the family, so it usually all loaded into a spreadsheet so we both know what's going on. Despite my involvement in planning everything, not being there at drop-off or doctor's appointments still produces mom guilt. Despite my best efforts to remind myself my kids are happy, I still feel those twinges of embarrassment when I'm the completely uninformed mom the day before the class party. And the pressure of being viewed as a reliable, ever-present colleague often keeps me from taking advantage of the flexibility my job allows. But most of the time, when I'm able to block out society's role expectations and my own unreasonable idea of what I should be able to accomplish, It is truly the best of both worlds. On flourishing as a mom who works. As the daughter of a stay-at-home mom married to the son of a stay-at-home mom, my adventures both as a mom who works and as the wife of a stay-at-home dad often feel uncharted and honestly harshly judged by many. 
This makes it more difficult for me to suppress the constant stream of doubt running through my mind. Are my kids loved enough? Is my husband sacrificing too much? Is it prudent to rely on a single income? Are my students getting enough feedback? Have I forgotten something? As bad as the pandemic has been for so many people, I think it has forced me to figure out how to truly flourish in my role. After the pandemic took away the physical distance I relied on to separate work from home, I had to accept the unexpected realities of being both a mom and a professor. Regardless of how many perfectly planned, color-coded schedules I developed, the role conflict became much more salient than it had ever been before. I quickly realized that I don't have two roles. I have one. I am always a mom. I am always a professor. My children will always come first, but I strongly believe my daughter, and to a lesser extent, my students, need to see me thrive at home and at work. Girls need to know that they have more than two options in life, and their future partners need to know it isn't weird to be a mom who works. The pandemic has challenged me to embrace my set of responsibilities as a single role instead of continuing to look for ways to separate my identity into two clearly defined boxes. It's difficult to label what happened to my outlook in our house over the past few months, so I'll just refer to it as incredible personal growth. Instead of insisting things hadn't changed, I accepted that my work and mothering would be done in shorter, alternating bursts, and my kids would see me more often. Surprisingly, I actually get more done when I'm working. My kids seem happier. I get to spend time with them and when they aren't cranky about mealtime or being tired. And my husband has miraculously survived the 24-7 presence of our adorable children without running away. I realize my experience comes with extreme privilege because my husband can almost always fill in around whatever I decide to do. But it has allowed some reflection on whether our 8-5 to workday with no home overlap ever really made sense. Before I became a mom who works, the uncertainty and lack of structure of working in a pandemic would have been an incredible challenge for me. But the unpredictable, sometimes devastating, but mostly amazing journey to this point helped me accept that nothing about life as a mom who works is completely planable. The spreadsheets still exist, but the plans reflect our dynamic reality. I plan for change now, and everyone seems better for it. Somewhere in the chaos of suddenly converting my classes to remote delivery, explaining to my daughter that she couldn't see her friends at school anymore, and advising my students through what was probably one of the hardest transitions they'll ever experience, I became better at every part of my role as a mom who works. When the pandemic finally ends, I hope to continue ignoring the judgment of society and doing what works for our family. You already know, you already know, you already know. I could leave it at that, but I suppose you came here for more than three words. Your intuition as a mother is a guiding light in your life if you only find how to access it. For some of us, it comes easy and emerges in the birthing suite or at the first time we hold our child to our chest, a child entrusted to us for care, and we know instantly we are the one for the job. For others, it comes in time. As the hormones settle and our confidence gently grows in our ability to care well for a new life. For others still, it's hard to find and trust because we've never been taught it's okay to trust ourselves because the voices of others have been so loud and so overwhelming for so long. 
You see, we've been honing the skill of women's intuition our entire lives. It starts small, letting us know which people love us and are for us and which ones only want something from us. It grows as we begin our professional careers, guiding us as we learn and understand what's the right fit at the right time, a lesson often learned by trial and error, but nonetheless a refining process. It's a grounding, a settling, a certainty. We each come fully into at different times, but that is present in each of us if we simply seek to see. Even better, there's science to this. Quote, a 2008 study in the British Journal of Psychology defined intuition as what happens when the brain draws on past experiences and external cues to make a decision. But it happens so fast that the reaction is often at an unconscious level. But that's only part of it, says Judith Orloff, MD, Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at UCLA and author of Dr. Judith Orloff's Guide to Intuitive Healing. Five Steps to Physical, Emotional, and Sexual Wellness. Just like the brain, there are neurotransmitters in the gut that can respond to environmental stimuli and emotions in the now. It's not just about past experiences, she says. When those neurotransmitters fire, you may feel the sensation of butterflies or uneasiness in your stomach. Researchers theorize that gut instinct which sends signals to your brain, plays a larger role in intuition. I rise to the occasion when my children have injuries. With two boys, we are no strangers to stitches and surgical glue. Tack on an adventurous baby sister who got her first surgical glue at 18 months old, and we are very knowledgeable about the best ERs in town. I've advocated for a punch card system so that the 12th stitch is free, but so far, no one has cooperated. My intuition, my gut-level knowing kicks into high gear when my children are hurt. I'm eerily calm. I'm the one who goes to the hospital. I'm the one who calmly communicates with triage. I'm the one who holds the child down for the doctors, and I never bat an eye. My husband? Well, let's just say he's learned not to come along. It's a supernatural feeling because it comes from within, and outside forces cannot seem to shake it. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know how I got this way. It's there, this knowing, and it tends to be a transcendent force for me in situations of crisis. I once had a teacher instruct me to listen to my body when making big decisions. Just as the quote above stated, our bodies tend to know. When I consider a big decision or commitment, I now pause and check in with my physical body. When I think about taking this thing on, do I feel tense? Are my shoulders scrunched up near my ears and does my stomach feel like it's going to drop out of my body? Or do I feel excited, settled, and eager to get to work, ready and able to power through the fear that comes with risk? When I consider this commitment, am I being voluntold or am I wholeheartedly saying yes? Is this worth the time and resources required? Does it meet my personal values and mission standards? Do I know enough about it? When I do this examination, do I physically feel peace or anxiety? When I review the contract to sign this client, how how do I feel? Is this a favor to someone else or does it line up with my mission? Am I a good fit and is it a good fit for me, whether I'm capable or not? Is this work I believe in? Do I feel grounded and certain in my core that this is right? Or do I have a nagging feeling this isn't right for me? 
That last one hits different because that's where I've gone wrong too many times. Someone I love or admire asks me to take on a project. It's not about whether or not I'm capable. It's about whether or not it's the right time, organization, or job. And every single time I go against that nagging feeling that this isn't right for me, I fail. Whether literally by not meeting contractual obligations or perceived solely based on falling short of my own high standards. A person I loved and admired set me up to submit an RFP to a newly formed nonprofit entity. They needed someone to come in, help plan a large gala style event, and offer fundraising assistance. My team and I tried to stay away from large events because I don't care about napkin colors, but the team was excited and a person I loved was asking, so we accepted the opportunity to apply and were awarded the contract. The first year was a smashing success, so we signed on for year two. Again, another great success. So we agreed to year three and an expanded services contract. And that's where things went south. I knew we should not sign that expanded services contract. I just knew it. But I had the staff capacity to complete the contract, so we did. As luck would have it, the account manager for this project was offered a new position and she left my firm shortly after. And I should have terminated the contract right then with a simple, Our capacity has changed and we are unable to fulfill the terms of the agreement. We appreciate the opportunity and are happy to recommend new firms. But no, I thought we can handle this no problem. And we forged ahead. I'm only sharing our side of the story, but a person on their end turned against us at some point for some reason. And I had felt this tension building. If I'm to guess, she wasn't feeling appreciated and decided to project that onto our team. I attempted to heal the riff but it just couldn't be fixed. That third event was full of critique and criticism unfairly directed at our team, and the nonprofit staff quite literally did not speak to us again. No matter what I tried in terms of getting information about various things, they simply wouldn't respond. I have lots of theories about this, and I can say now with years of coaching behind me that the situation had absolutely nothing to do with us. What I thought of as failures at the time were not literal failures. I just perceive them that way based on my internal personal measures, but that simply doesn't matter. I should have listened. She was in there, my intuition, telling me exactly what to do, and I ignored it because I was scared to disappoint, or perhaps, most honestly, to admit I couldn't do something. How do I know to listen now? Because my life is infinitely more peaceful when I do. Because disappointing someone else is always better than disappointing myself. Because there's too much on my plate as a mom who works to allow any space to be taken up by something that does not feel right. I'm not talking about things we don't like to do. I'm talking about things we know in our bones we shouldn't do. Have you ever been voluntold for something? This might be a new word, but I recommend adding it to your arsenal because there is power when you can name an experience. The exact definition from Jenna's Made Up Word Dictionary is this. Someone volunteers you to do something without asking for permission, and it often does not feel like an option, but a demand. Has your partner ever done this? Oh, sure. She would love to do that. She's so good at whatever thing. I know she wants to help you too. Instead of volunteering him or herself, someone else commits you to an activity, event, or opportunity you simply did not ask to be part of. And more often than not, I find the push off onto me has more to do with them not wanting to do something and being unable to say no. 
My husband now knows not to do this under any circumstances. You might be able to imagine how one too many of these voluntold conversations went, and he has now decided it is in his best interests and to the benefit of his health to not do this anymore. To make space to trust my intuition and hear what she was saying to me, I had to get serious about stripping away things that no longer served me. I had to do a deep examination of who I was to determine who I wanted to be. Then I had to decide what things would remain in my life to maintain the integrity of what I desired. It was not an easy process. It took the help of a coach, spiritual engagement, life experiences, good and bad, and getting still and quiet. To start this year, I took a piece of paper, drew a line down the middle to create two columns, and wrote at the top of each column, keep and toss. I then looked through my digital calendar from last year and started putting things into each column. I've learned this practice from many women I follow, but Emily P. Freeman is one of my absolute favorites. Her work focuses on how to create practices that inspire us to do our next right thing. A few things stand out on that list. One, I kept things that COVID inspired, like walking every day and cultivating Zoom meetups. This life experience helped me fine-tune my intuition like nothing before, and I'm only just now uncovering that good. Two, I tossed out painting my nails because I don't have the time or the willpower for maintenance. This was a super small, but I'm telling you, it was an important decision to make. I am a woman with natural fingernails. Exhale. Three, I chose to keep short workouts, 10 to 15 minutes, and toss out hour-long workouts. This is not the season for me to focus on long workouts, and I know myself well. I simply won't do them. I always have 10 minutes. I do not always have 45 to 60 minutes. Maybe I will someday, but that someday is not now. Four, I kept overnights alone because that practice restores me faster than anything else. I have found so much solace and quick nights away between the quiet alone time and simply having control of the television all to myself. Five, finally, perhaps most importantly, I kept TikTok. It was critical for me to do this work for myself. As an auditory processor, I've often been too quick to share every feeling, idea, thought, or theory with those around me. Too often we invite other voices into our process and into our decision making before we have done the work to determine what's best for us. I'm all for consulting those who love you and know you, but this should be a highly selective process. I have found tremendous freedom and benefit in hiring an executive coach. By outsourcing my external processing to a third party, I've become a better listener and friend to those around me. I still battle my propensity to dominate a conversation simply because I have so many thoughts swirling and I'm so excited to be with my people and I just want to share every single thing. This is not healthy or helpful to anyone. Quite honestly, it can become harmful if I cannot rein in my verbal vomit to show others I care for them and want to listen, as well as ensuring I do not poison relationships by oversharing. A coach or therapist can be an incredible tool for finding and trusting your women's intuition. Working with a professional brings an objective voice into your purview and allows someone else to help you see better. Mickey, the woman I've worked with for years, uses phrase like, I heard a lot of this feeling, thought, emotion when you were explaining that to me. She helps me find aha moments simply by guiding me to discover and assess the patterns in my behavior, thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Because of this simple but profound prodding, I'm now able to do much of this work myself in real time, and it has helped me know myself and to trust myself and lead myself with clarity and confidence. 
Do not feel one ounce of shame if you have ever operated in violation of your intuition or simply feel as if you have none. This is something that is within you, but it requires finding, trusting, and believing. Life experiences are different for all of us, and pain and trauma complicate this work because others' actions impact our lives. For many moms, this work requires a safe space with professional help to heal and find the wholeness required to find, hear, know, and trust that inner guiding. Please believe you are worth this work and seek out a therapist or counselor who will help. It won't just change your life and how you experience the world around you, but it will change the trajectory of your family as well. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Finally, do not let strangers set your story, stage, and surroundings. What you see on Instagram or read on Twitter is not the gold standard for how, who, when, or what you should be, think, believe, or do. You cannot scroll your way to intuition. Do not outsource who you are to the ideas and money-motivated posts of others. Yes, how others have done things can be a starting place, but you must do the work to trust and know yourself. You already know, you already know, you already know.